0: As we continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke, I invite you to take out a Bible, if you have one, and uh, turn in said Bible to Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. And just before we hear our passage this morning, I want to ask you a question. And, and maybe it's a question that you've thought about before and, and, and will speak to you. The question is this, what does God do with sinners? What does God do with sinners? We know that one day, or this is what we believe as a Bible-believing church, that one day God's gonna set all things right and the new creation is gonna come and that's gonna be a time of judgment where everything is set right, but what about now? What does God do with sinners? And that might be a relevant question to you this morning. If you're thinking about what it might mean for your life to follow Jesus, well, what's God gonna do with me? Is he gonna receive me or not? What does God do with sinners? So with that question in mind, I want us to read together Luke chapter seven, verses 36 to 50. And uh, if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 839. Let's read that together. Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Let's pray. Living God, we thank you for the words we have just read. And we know that they come to us through your servant Luke, empowered by your spirit. And we ask, O Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit, that same spirit who inspired these words to now illumine our hearts and minds that we might receive them And we might receive the reality of which they speak and that we might enter into the realities that they're showing us like never before jesus show yourself to us this morning in increasing measure we love you and we welcome you to do this in your name amen very simply this morning as we track through this text what we're going to do is we're going to just take a look at the situation as you can see on the outline Then we're gonna track the two responses that we see to Jesus, namely in Simon and in the sinner. And then thirdly, we're gonna look at what the implications are for us as a people called to represent this Jesus that we encounter in this text to our communities and in our world. So the situation, Jesus is still in Galilee. That's his home region. And he's been going around preaching and teaching and healing. He's been announcing the arrival of a kingdom. The kingdom of god and he's been explaining to people the way of that kingdom and he has been manifesting the presence of that kingdom as he heals people and drives out evil spirits he's saying hey folks this is what happens when we come under god's good rule and so naturally he's invited to the house of a pharisee right he He's kind of gaining uh, a reputation, and this religious leader wants to have him over for dinner. And so he goes, and they're reclining at the table. And just uh, so you know, the word reclining there, they, weren't, they didn't sit on chairs back in those days, because as we evaluate this woman coming to Jesus to wash his feet, she wasn't like reaching, crawling under the table to his feet. People had a very low table, and you would kind of recline And I can't, I'm not going to do it right here, but your feet would be sticking out behind you and you'd be kind of laying down propped up on your side. That's how people ate in those days. And so they're reclining at table and something completely unexpected happens. A woman enters. She comes up behind Jesus and she's weeping. And she starts to to aim her tears at his feet and, and wash his feet with her tears and 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 with her unbound hair wipe his feet and clean them And, and she kisses his feet and she pours perfume on them can you imagine have you ever been at a party when someone did that i have not we learn that her reputation goes ahead of her she's called a sinner twice in verse 37 and verse 39 And in Jesus' day, people could be roughly divided into two categories. On the one hand, you had the righteous. These were people who followed God's law and took it seriously. That's what Simon and his friends were part of. As Pharisees, they took God's law really seriously, and they saw it as their job to help purify Israel from the contamination of sin. On the other hand, you have sinners, uh, people like tax collectors, prostitutes, Rap scallions, people who have no regard for God and his law. Some actually think that this woman was a prostitute, but we aren't given the details of her sin. In any case, it's shocking. It's shocking enough that she would disturb this dinner party of, of such a well-respected figure in the community. But what's even more shocking is how Jesus treats her. According to people like the Pharisees, sinners were what was wrong with the world. According to them, sinners were to blame for Israel's disastrous position under the foot of the Roman Empire. They interpreted it as God's judgment on their nation, and the key for them was to cleanse the nation of these people. The Pharisees and Simon had a specific idea of that question. What does God do with sinners? In Jesus' day, there was a popular book of wisdom called the Psalms of Solomon. Uh, These aren't in the Bible, uh, and Solomon didn't actually write them. Someone was kind of posing as him. But these Psalms were kind of like uh, current day popular wisdom. And they really represent what people thought about the righteous and sinners in Jesus' day. And, and, And they give us insight into how Simon would have viewed her. Check this out. In, in the 12th Psalm of this collection of writings, it says this, the Lord's salvation be on Israel, his servant forever. And may sinners be destroyed from the face of the Lord at once. And as you read through these Psalms of Solomon, it's just over and over again, the contrast between these righteous people and sinners. And what sinners ultimately deserve is to be cut off from the people Uh, Cursed, given over to humiliation and destruction, right? That's, That's at least what God should do with these people. But notice how Jesus doesn't do that. He receives this woman's actions, and in doing so, he receives her, and he's willing to be associated with her. Right? It's, it's like a lunchroom scene where you have uh, the, the one kid who, who's kind of an outlier, um, maybe gets bullied by the other kids, and he's sitting alone at, at table. And then you have the table over here of all the cool kids, right? And they're in, everyone wants to be like them. It's like one of the cool kids getting up and going to, to sit with that one kid who's alone. There, there's an identification, a willingness to be associated with this person. Jesus receives her. And even more than that, do you notice what he does about her sin? He says to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Isn't that profound? What Luke's doing here is very intentional because as we're getting deeper and deeper into his story, he's continuing to paint the portrait of Jesus, and it's coming more and more into focus. Jesus' identity here is being put forward as one who has authority to forgive sins. And the question that the people asked, who is this who forgives even sins? It's a pertinent question. Can he even do that? And we as the readers are left to wrestle through that question. Can he do it? Because what we see in the text is clearly Jesus thinks he can, right? He thinks he can. That's what's being put before us. That Jesus somehow has the right to forgive sins. How does he have the right to forgive sins? If you and I were, say, walking down the street and there was an ice cream shop and I said, hey, just just wait out here, I'm going to go in and get you a cone, and I go in and, and you get jumped okay by a mugger and and they beat you up they rough you up and they take your wallet and out I come onto the scene and I'm like oh my goodness I see the mugger running off I've been a lot of help haven't I um, but the police come we get it all sorted out and, and they end up catching the person okay and we're debriefing with the police after and they're like yeah we caught the perpetrator um, what do you want to do do you want to press charges and, and and the police officer would ask you who had gotten jump, jumped. Say I stepped in and I said, Yeah, we forgive. We forgive the person. We're not going to press charges. What would you do? You turn to me and you say, Andrew, you have no right to forgive this person. You have no right to drop the charges. Why? Hadn't been done against me, right? it been done against you. This is how forgiveness works. You don't have the right to forgive something that wasn't committed against you. And so when Jesus is forgiving sins, the staggering implications of this are that somehow in the equation of human sin, Jesus is the offended party, right? The question that the Pharisees ask in chapter 5 is the right question. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone when Jesus forgives the sins of the paralytic? What's the answer? What's the answer? Who can forgive sins but God alone? No one, right? The implication is Jesus has authority and the right to forgive sins. He's here to show us what God does with sinners who come to him. so what does he do with sinners? He forgives them and he saves them. That's what's going on here. So now I want to shift and look at the responses that we see to Jesus doing this. First, let's look at Simon. So Simon is pretty hard to pin down. There's a mixture of respect that he has for Jesus, but he's, he's also kind of, disrespectful, right? He kind of ridicules Jesus. He invites him over. He calls him a teacher or rabbi in his culture. That, that was a sign of respect. But he's a hostile host, right? We, we find out later in the text that he doesn't welcome Jesus as he should have. A host in that day was supposed to provide water, at least for the guests to wash their feet, if not wash their feet for them. The host was supposed to greet them with a kiss, The host would often give them like some perfume on their head, uh, just a way of blessing them, saying, welcome into my home. He had done none of that. He didn't welcome Jesus properly. And let me tell you, in that culture, that was a big deal. People would have taken notice. And this shows that somehow Simon views Jesus as less than him or that Jesus doesn't have anything to offer him. He has no need when it comes to this Jesus guy. In verse 39, he he mutters to himself as he's viewing the scene that's unfolding to him. He says, if this man were a prophet, in other words, if this man really is the real deal, if he really speaks for God, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. So clearly in Simon's mind, he's in a whole other category from this woman, right? The righteous sinner thing. He's operating with that understanding. And what we see in Simon this morning is actually something that I think comes out as a warning to us, especially those of us who have been in the church a long time, that it's a warning against uh, becoming self-sufficient. It's a warning against thinking um, that you're okay and you don't have any sin and and you don't need Jesus. I'm sure most of us would never um, make the step of thinking Jesus is beneath us, but we can consider, are there any ways that we've come to think that we don't need him? That, that repentance and forgiveness, those are those are good spiritual acts for people in the church who really have messed up lives. You know, but I don't need to engage in that kind of beginner spirituality. I've moved beyond that. Is there any way that we've adopted that kind of mindset? Because Simon and his friends. Uh, they didn't have ears to hear the fact that they had sinned. If you remember, just before this passage, there's this whole section where Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And if you turn in your Bible just a few verses back to to chapter 7, verse 29, you'll see what I'm talking about. So John the Baptist came, and he came announcing a baptism for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. John came to Israel saying, hey guys, we've got to turn back to God. We're going the wrong way and we need to come back. And check out how the Pharisees responded to that message. Verse 29, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. In other words, all the sinners... Right? All the kind of lowlifes, they, they heard John's message to repent, and they were like, Yeah, we need this. Let's go down to the river. Then verse 30. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they hadn't been baptized by John. In other words, when John came calling the people to repentance, they said, nah, no thanks. We're good we are the righteous what luke is showing us is is that in thinking that they didn't have sin the pharisees were actually pushing god away and pushing god's purposes away for their own lives and do we do the same thing sometimes we can fall into thinking that going to church and being a mature christian means being really strong right Self-sufficient, when you talk to people, they say, yeah, I'm I'm feeling really strong in my faith. Um, And we get this image that I need to be this strong person, never admit my fault. But in doing that, in buying that image of maturity, we actually could be rejecting God's purpose for us. Because the gospel doesn't come and say, you're okay, just try to be a better person. The gospel comes and says, you're a sinner, and Christ has made a way for you to be forgiven and to live a new life. And that you can actually become more like Jesus as his spirit works in you. And that can't happen if if when that message of repentance comes and you say, no thanks, I'm good, I've already arrived, right? Nothing is more deadly to Christian faith than than that self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. It's not maturity, it's immaturity. Listen to what Paul says about himself in 1 Timothy 1:15. So Paul, in case you're new to church, Paul was like a big deal in the early church. He was one of the church's biggest, most important leaders. He wrote most of the books in the New Testament. And if he wasn't mature, I don't know who, who is, right? This is Paul the Apostle. Check out what he says. He's talking to his, uh, his disciple Timothy, a guy he was mentoring, who he was raising up in leadership. And he says in chapter one, verse 15 of 1 Timothy, he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. So he's prefacing what he's about to say and saying this, you can take this to the bank. Okay, what I'm about to say, you can take this to the bank. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he says, of whom I am the worst. Of whom I am the worst, present tense. He's not talking about his previous life before he knew Jesus when he was persecuting the church. He says, of whom I am the worst. He goes on, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, he says it again, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. A mark of Christian maturity is being profoundly aware of your sin and even more profoundly aware of Christ's mercy towards you in that sin. That's Paul saying that to us. Don't be afraid to acknowledge your sin before the living God. Because if you don't acknowledge it, what Jesus really makes clear in the parable is it's there anyway, so you might as well get with the reality, right? Look at what he says in the parable in verse 41. He says, the man who owed 500 denarii and the man who owes 50 denarii, they're in the same boat. Verse 42, he says, neither of them had the money to pay him back. Right, Simon thinks he's in this different category from this woman, but Jesus says, Simon, you're, you're not, when it comes to settling the debt we have with God, no one can pay it back. The disease of sin has infected us all. We're all guilty and our only hope is that God would forgive us, that he would release us from our debt somehow. And Jesus wants Simon to see this. he's, He's imploring Simon to come and see his need for forgiveness and for a savior. So he asks him a question. The second half of verse 42, Jesus says, now, which one of them will love him more? He's trying to draw Simon in. Now, when I was studying this, this came to me as an odd question because Jesus is talking about money lending. And who ever heard of loving their money lender? Certainly not I. That's not how I operate with my banker. It's not a relationship of love. It's a business transaction, Right? What Jesus is doing is he's inviting Simon into a different way of viewing his spirituality, a different way of viewing his relationship with God, away from this transactional thing and into a relationship of love. He's drawing him into that relationship. He's saying, Simon, God doesn't want your righteousness. He doesn't want your good works. He he wants you. He wants you with him in that relationship of love. And so Jesus puts the question, which one of them will love him more? And and Simon just so reluctantly answers. It's like Jesus is just pulling the answer out of him. He says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And the point is this, that the more you're aware of your need for forgiveness, the more you're gonna respond to Jesus with love and gratitude So don't be afraid of seeing your sin. Don't be afraid when the Spirit starts to show you ways that you're you're falling short. It's not God's way of saying, look, you're such a miserable person. It's God's way of saying, look, this is in your life, and this is actually strangling life in you, and I want you to be free of that. I want you to enjoy life to its fullest, and I'm showing you this so that by my power of the death of my death and resurrection, you might be dead to it, as Pastor Tim prayed. And you might live in freedom from it. Because we often run from that uh, feeling of feeling our need or when we feel our emptiness, we run from it or we try and fill the emptiness with all kinds of things, right? Entertainment, comfort, uh, relationships, what have you. But what if feeling that emptiness is the very thing that's going to drive you into a deeper experience of God's love and mercy? Just let him speak that gospel to you. And let that experience drive you to him, to cling to him. That's what we see in this sinner woman. She knew the charges against her, right? But she came to Jesus against all hope because she had experienced God's forgiveness. And and her response is just, I gotta be with this Jesus. I gotta be close to him. And she honors him. She welcomes him for Simon in this really visceral way. Tears and hair. It's, It's a really uncomfortable scene, but she only has thought for Jesus. And look at what Jesus calls her actions. In verse 50, he calls her response faith. Your faith has saved you. Too often we can think that faith is agreeing with something in your mind, right? Like when you're talking with someone at school or at work and, and they say, Oh, you know, I, I believe in God. I have faith. Usually what they mean is that they believe God's there, right? It's this act of the mind. I believe He's there. And that's a really comfortable definition of faith, right? Uh, it's really non committal, it's more or less private. Right? It's kind of in your mind, and, and people can't really confirm or deny that it's there, right? Because it might not necessarily make its way into how you live. But what does Jesus call faith here? It's a bit different than that kind of mind notion of faith. In seminary, one of my professors had us read a missionary biography um, by a guy who worked in East Africa with the Maasai people, and when you work cross-culturally like that and, and you want to share the gospel, you need to translate, right? You need to translate concepts into people's language. And so this missionary was, was trying to translate the concept of faith to a Maasai elder. And uh, as he did so, his own kind of Western version of faith as this thing I do in my mind got a little exposed. And here's what the elder said to him. To believe like that, the elder said, right? This, this notion of just believing in your mind. He said, To believe like that is similar to a white hunter shooting an animal with his gun from a great distance. Only his eyes and fingers took part in the act. We should find another word. He continued, For a man to really believe is like a lion going after its prey. His nose and eyes and ears pick up on the prey. His legs give him the speed to catch it. All the power of his body is involved in the terrible death leap and single blow to the neck with the front paw, the blow that actually kills. And as the animal goes down, the lion envelops it in his arms, pulls it to himself, and makes it part of himself. That's the way a lion kills. This is the way a man believes. This is what faith is. Isn't that profound? And I think that definition is is a bit closer to what we see this woman doing. Right? Uh, She she doesn't fully know who Jesus is. She doesn't have all her doctrines down. She, She just comes. She throws herself at his feet and she clings to him, pulling to herself the one who has been pulling her to him the God who has been faithful to her to pursue her, to show her his forgiveness and love and mercy. And so the the question that her response puts before us is, is, do we have faith like that? Do we have faith that makes so much of Jesus that we forget the list of accusations against us? We don't care what people think of us, and all that matters is, is that I am close, that I'm clinging to Jesus we have faith like that? It's a challenging question. And I just want to encourage you, if you're here this morning and you're you're wondering, uh, you know, about following Jesus, maybe you're kind of dancing with God um, and and laying out what it might mean to follow him, um, don't think that you have to have all your ducks in a row, all your doctrines neatly laid out. Jesus welcomes sinners. He welcomes people like you and me to himself. And faith is just clinging to him. Saying, I'm here, I'm in, I need you. Let's shift now and think about what it means for us as the church to represent this Jesus. Our mission and and our vision prayer as a church is the following God, our Father, make us a body of people so transformed and empowered by your word and spirit that our communities, our nation, and our world would see and know Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. If if you're here this morning, um, maybe you're visiting and you're wondering what we're about, that's what we're about. Very simply, we want to represent Jesus so that people get to know him. And what we're learning about Jesus today is that he welcomes sinners, right? He, He identifies with them. He forgives them, and he saves them. And if that's the way... Jesus operates, that, that needs to come to bear on how we operate too, right? As Jesus' followers. If we're a church on mission to welcome all people to Jesus, this Jesus needs to shape how we do that. I mean, our sign out front says, all are welcome, right? Maybe you read that on the way in. And we so desperately want that to be true of us, but we need to consider, when we welcome people, does our welcome come with a footnote and fine print conditions at the bottom, right? Do we say all are welcome so long as dot, 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 right? So long as you dress like us. All are welcome so long as you keep your mess to yourself. All are welcome as long as you don't rock the boat. Really, you could, you could fill in the blank there with whatever yardstick um, you're you're tempted to use on people and use as a filter through which you see them. I do this too. Right? It's it's this it's that judgmentalism that Jesus has been wanting uh, to, to root out of us since he started talking about enemy love and forgiving people uh, in, in his sermon on the plane. Because when it comes to welcoming others as a church, and, and I want us take I want to take us further than just the notion of welcoming them into a building, right? Gospel welcome, the kind of welcome that the church needs to be about is about welcoming people into our lives and being willing to enter into their lives. When it comes to that, our thoughts can so easily sound like Simon, like I know what kind of person you are. I know you're lot. You're this, that, and the other thing. It can be a well-worn path in our brains that we just automatically slip into. And if we're gonna be a church that is representing this Jesus, we need his Holy Spirit to come. We need to repent. And we need uh, for him to refine us and root this out of us. This is so important. If we're gonna be a church representing Jesus in this neighborhood, in in this city, because people's stories are so complicated. Their lives are full of pressures that you and I sometimes cannot fathom and do not understand because they weren't part of our story. It's crazy how in a city, you can live in the same neighborhood of someone, you can even live in the same building, yet you inhabit a completely different world. Robert Linthicum was a pastor with decades of experience in urban ministry. And he tells a story from his early years in ministry that I really want us to hear um, and just so you know, if you have kids in, in the audience, this is like uh, a bit raw and a bit real. It's probably PG-13, okay? So there might be stuff you have to like explain later uh, to your kids if they're here. I don't see too many. So this is, this is what he says. He says, I was working among teenagers in a government project in which the poor were warehoused in a high-rise buildings, in a united states city our youth ministry included a spectrum of recreational and athletic activities centered around bible studies a 14 year old girl whom i will call eva began to attend one of these bible study groups eva was an exceptionally beautiful teenager physically mature for her age she became even more radiant when she received christ as her lord and savior I began discipling Eva, building her up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. My academic year was drawing to a close, and I was looking forward to returning home for summer vacation. And just before I was about to leave my teenage parish, Eva came to me, greatly troubled. Bob, she said, I'm under terrible pressure, and I don't know what to do. There's a very large gang in this project that recruits girls to be prostitutes, for wealthy white men in the suburbs. They're trying to force me to join them. I know it's wrong, but what should I do? I gave Eva all the appropriate advice I had learned in church and college about how if she resisted evil, it would flee from her. I urged her to stick with her Bible study group and not to give into this gang's demands. Then I left for my summer vacation. Three months later, I returned to school and to the ministry in which I had been engaged in that city, and Eva was nowhere to be found. When I asked about her at Bible study, the other youth told me she had stopped coming about a month after I had left. I went to Eva's apartment in one of the project buildings to talk with her. Eva answered to my knock on the door. As soon as she saw me, she burst into tears. They got to me, Bob, she said. I've become a whore. <clears throat> Eva, how could you give in like that? I unsympathetically responded. Why didn't you resist? I didn't give in, she responded. I was forced. Then she told me a story of terror. First, They told me they would beat my father if I didn't become one of their prostitutes. I refused, and they beat him bad. Then they said my brother was to be next. He ended up in the hospital. Then they told me that if I didn't yield, they would gang rape my mother. I knew they meant it. I had no alternative, so I gave in and became one of their whores. But, Eva, I said, why didn't you get some protection? Why didn't you go to the police? Bob, you white honky, Eva responded. Who do you think they are? Why do I share this story? It's the story of a girl who was caught up in forces and powers in her community where even the police were behind the recruitment of prostitutes. I share this story so that we know people have a story. The woman in this story has a story. And if we adopt the attitude of Simon and we see her and we just label her, we will dismiss her. But what Jesus does and what Simon's mistake is, he doesn't think Jesus knows her story, right? If only he knew who she was. But Jesus did know. And he welcomed her. He welcomed her anyway. And the people that we want to welcome to Jesus have a story and we don't always know what they're up against. We don't always know the complexity of it. And so we need to welcome people and listen to them, get to know them. This is so important for us because I'm convinced that the the question that Jesus asks Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? I'm convinced Jesus is asking us that question here today. Church, do we see, do you see these people? Do you see the people in your community whom I love, who are made in my image, that I am drawing to myself? We need to realize that as we seek to minister the gospel, the gospel isn't just resist sin and it'll flee from you. The gospel isn't just, hey, stop sinning. There's more to it than that. If that's all we give people, it's like if, if someone's trapped on a downward moving elevator, and if that's our gospel, it's like giving that person trapped on that elevator a ladder and saying, okay, let's go. There's a bigger issue, right? Our battle, the scriptures say, isn't with flesh and blood, but that there's powers and principalities and systems and structures of injustice and evil at work in our city and in our neighborhood. Church, people are not our enemy. And and their moral shortcomings aren't the first thing God wants us to address. We need better news than that. And please don't misread me. Holiness is important. Obedience to Jesus' teaching is important. And following Jesus will result in transformation and holiness in a person's life. But the good news isn't that you can stop sinning. The good news is that God entered into the arena with us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That he came to us being without sin and stood with us in the midst of our sin. And that he showed us God's intention to forgive and rescue sinners and that he carried out that intention when he died a sinner's death on the cross, that he paid our debt, took our punishment on himself, and in doing so, he disarmed the powers that enslaved us. That's good news. In Colossians 2.13, it says, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, And get this, he's forgiven us, but even more, he's dealt with the deeper spiritual realities that held us ensnared, that lead to the sin. Verse 15, in having disarmed the powers and authority, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. could have been an amen there. Right? The gospel is about so much more than me being forgiven. It's about the cosmic implications of the powers being defeated. And what are we gonna bring as a church? What good news are we gonna bring to people? I think as forgiven sinners, the good news that we carry is carried as we welcome people to Jesus, as we stand with them in the midst of the battle that they're caught up in as we minister the forgiveness of God and we speak the truth and we confront the powers in the name of King Jesus. That's faithful representation of what Jesus is calling us to through this text. If we have ears to hear, would we hear that? Would we embrace that as a church? And would it just launch us into this faithful living to Christ and this abandonment of ourselves to his purpose of drawing all peoples to himself that they too might find the life that we've found let's pray holy spirit would you empower us to continue to become a church that sees people as you see them that we would be people of welcome who stand in the midst of the battle ministering your forgiveness and confronting the powers of darkness in your name and in the victory of your cross, your death and resurrection. I pray this, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen? Amen.